winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 72nd episode in the series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva, Gometra and Erid. I'm Alistair Satchel. I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull and I'll be your host today. I hope this finds you happy and well wherever and whenever you may be and not stuffed with a cold like me. Unusually, this is the second of two episodes being released today. This episode is a conversation with Anne Scott about Java and Craig Inure in the 1950s. Episode 71 is with Cameron Fletcher, who grew up in Turloisk, which can be found elsewhere in your podcast feed or on our website. Anne grew up in Falkirk, lived in Edinburgh for many years, and now resides in Larks. Her connection with the Isle of Mull, which led to our conversation, is that her grandfather, Alexander McLaughlin of Marvin, was the head gardener at Java Lodge. Talking with listeners over the years, Java Lodge has always been an interesting topic as it was demolished so many years ago to make way for the Isle of Mull Hotel overlooking the bay at Craigenure. So I thought this opportunity was too good to miss. Anne offers up insights into the communities around there that I know many people will find fascinating. Anne is an academic who is still teaching to this day. She's been a broadcaster working with Radio Scotland, featuring on the wonderful Jimmy McGregor's programmes. I think there should be much more celebration for the work of Jimmy McGregor. He's really quite brilliant. And she's also an author. Her book, 18 Bookshops, is an absolute delight. If, like me, you're a bit of a bibliophile, well then this is the book you've been waiting for. Many listeners will also know the work of Anne's son, Mike Scott of the Waterboys, whose music has brought joy to millions of listeners. I'm particularly fond of Fisherman's Blues, which, if you don't know, seek it out. It's a very special album indeed. Now, there is a slight issue with this episode, in that I was so, so focused on trying to get things right with the record, that I totally forgot to record my own voice. Yes. Yes, I am a fanny. So, what you're going to hear today is a bit more like a radio programme where you'll hear my voiceover coming in to frame the questions rather than a standard episode of what we do in the winter. All because I'm a fud. It is now with a great deal of pleasure that I pass you over to the wonderful Anne Scott. Who are you? Anne Scott. I was born in Falkirk. My father was in the library and um, my parents were elderly, really. But I had a very good childhood. I had an older brother who was 16 years older than I was. He was at art school and he was um, my great pal. As I was growing up, he and his friends and so I grew up with largely masculine minds and uh, intellectual people. I had no choice. It was just that was that was how they were. So I was at school with other girls and boys right through until I was 18. But my real education was with my brother because... He was buying reproductions of paintings and things and he's teaching me about them and and books that other girl that girls weren't reading. 
And so I was always several years ahead of other schoolgirls. And then I went to Edinburgh University. I did an honours degree in, in English and history. And I got a good degree. I promised my father that I would teach for two years to pay back some of the money that he'd spent. And I did that. And I didn't enjoy teaching children. I wasn't good at it. I expected far too much of them because I had grown up with people expected too much of me as well. And then I got married. Got married in Edinburgh. Lived in Edinburgh for 27 years. I worked with the university, yes. Of course, we had our, our little boy. And he went to school in Edinburgh. You'll find this on his website or something. But he went to Harriet's in Edinburgh, and I, I worked. And then I wanted to move to the West. I missed the sea very much. And uh, so I came over here, and I was an open university tutor. I, I, I quite enjoyed it. I like, didn't like the beginning because um, you had to start with the ground-level people. But gradually, I worked my way up to second and third level. Third level was great because it was really difficult stuff, Renaissance literature and so on. And I did that and then for 10 years. And then I gave that up because Mike had moved to London. And uh, when he was 12, he, this isn't a, a secret or anything, it's in his books. Uh, when he was 12, he said he got a guitar for a birthday present. And he said, I want to go on a stage and write songs and sing. And that's what he did. He was in London, and then he went to New York and lived in New York for several years. I went over and spent time there. And, uh, yeah, so our lives have been sort of intertwined in ways. Interestingly, it seems interesting to me anyway, we both had books out published at the same time. One of, one of my friends said, I've never heard of this, a mother and son, her books coming out, but they did. My book was called 18 Bookshops, but it seemed to do more for readers than, I mean, I didn't just write about my next bookshop is, nothing like that. It was my life, really. Well, one of the chapters is about the first printing press in Scotland, which was in 1508 in Edinburgh. And then there are, there are bookshops that I'm buying books for myself in. It begins with Mike being seven or eight, and we're in London because that brother of mine got married and lived in London. So we used to go and stay with him. So I've got memories, lots of memories of Mike and me uh, in London, buying records, buying music magazines, all that kind of thing. At this point, I asked Anne, what was her connection to the Isle of Mull? My mother was one of the daughters of um, Alexander MacLachlan, 
who was head gardener to the Miss Maclean's. Now, they were two ladies. There were a lot of children in that family, but the other girls had married. But there were two ladies, one was 40, one was 42, when their brother returned from Java, from Batavia in Java, with a new wife, and he wanted to live at Lahbui Harris. He didn't want to share it with his two maiden sisters. And so he built a house for them, and he named it after his coffee fields, and he called it Java Lodge. And they moved in there, the two women, and their mother, that was 1860. Donald, the brother who built the house, died in 1863. Lahbui Harris became the residence of his next of kin, uh, which was his wife, it suited everybody that the Miss Macleans should stay at Java Lodge, continue to live there. However, they were going to have to fund it themselves. And really, the next 30, 40 years are full of references in the catalogue in Tobermory Museum, full of references to devices that they had for making enough money to keep the place. One of these was having the gardens outside kept in very good order for prospective tenants, people to come and not uh, and take over the house. They were quite happy to do that because they had relatives in Edinburgh they, and London they went to stay with. But it's, it's terribly sad to read that because they get people coming to look at it. And these are people that are well known to the family and others. And then they decide it's too expensive. So it's, it's quite a struggle. And it explains why my mother used to talk about how often these women had to have talks with my mother's mother and father. Now, they must have been, I think, possibly a little bit unworldly. It must have been hard for them. There was a very nice house in the garden, which my, my grandparents had. Let me get this right. My mother as a child was very much loved there. And three of the daughters were named for the Miss Macleans. There seems to have been a very close friendship. I think it may have been my grandmother who was a, a milliner. And she had been a milliner in Oban. And there were all these... English ladies that came up for the August and got their hats made and got them decorated. And that was my grandmother's job. And she was, I've seen pictures of her, and she's a very, very elegant lady indeed. Probably quite unusual, maybe, in her time. And there were 
a number of places that are still there in Craigmuir that the children, the girls, seem to think of as being places they could go and spend time the day. These were places that are named quite a lot in Joe Curry's book. There's um, the farms of Gorton, Kilpatrick, Oakbank, and these were three at Scalistow, on the way between Java Lodge and these farms, there was a tiny school, and it was called Scalistow School. When children had, by law, to go to school, they were just about four and a half, five, and they were too small to walk to Loch Don. And so Scalistow had this little school, and my mother called it the little school. And children went there, and these, these my mother's sisters, who were born all there in Java Lodge House, they were very welcome at all these families, all these farms. And I think after school, they just toddled up to these farms and were brought home, you know. And very, very friendly. It seems that my grandfather, Alexander, was um, very close to the minister. I was reading last night, in fact, about the differences there were between the Church of Scotland people and the Free Church. There were real, real, real problems there. And that little church beside the inn, I had thought that was a free church, but in fact, it wasn't. It was a Church of Scotland, and the manse was just across the road, and it's still there, but it's a hotel now. When my mother went back, my brother, it was my brother who took her back, and my father and I went too. The first time since she left it, when we went, that house was still a uh, manse, and there was a son who was about my own age, and uh, I was a student at Edinburgh University at the time. I liked him very much, and we used to go for walks together and talk. He told me a lot about the church and about the place, and the other people that my mother was very, very friendly with when she was older were the Guthrie's at Torrissey Castle. And Torrissey had been called Loch Bui when they first went into it. But in 1912, when the Maclean's, the E-A-N-S Maclean's, when the Maclean's came back, and rebuilt Duart, the people who had made their home in what was Torrissey to my mother were about to, to rename their house Duart. But, but Mrs. Guthrie sent a letter to 
the Maclean of Duart to say that now that he was in residence there, that castle would become Duart again, and he agreed. So Torrisay was what it was, but it had also been called Lochbui and Duart. So it was it was very, very close to the the Macleans. The two sets of Macleans had had a very divided history. And uh, I was interested that the Macleans of Lobui had refused to follow Prince Charles Edward Stuart. And the Macleans at Duart, of course, did. That seems not to have been forgotten on either side. In some ways, it goes a long way to explain why Donald was so eager to give his unmarried sisters a home of their own. At least that's how it seems to be now. 1948 was the first year that my mother was back. And 1953 was the last year that she was back. So we went every summer for those years. I had finished my my degree and I was getting married. So, you know, things had moved on for me. And I wasn't back when they went back again on their own. This led me to ask, where did you stay when you came back to visit? The, the inn, we stayed at the inn. Dougie McGregor and Mary were the, the owners. I got to know Mary quite well. And after, long time after, when I was back on my own, I think, Mary and Dougie had given up the inn and had gone to live at Lochdon Head. And I visited them there. I was always made so welcome. I think these McLaughlins must have been well thought of and well liked at Java. There was a a man called Alan Cameron that had a taxi and he took visitors from the inn to various places all round about because cars were not as commonplace as they would be later. There was a, a very sad thing, I remember, that before the ferry came to Craignmuir, you know this historically, but I actually experienced it. You had to come off the ferry quite a way out into a small motorboat with your luggage and you got taken in. Now, the boatman was called George Klein. Years later, when I was no longer going to Mull, I read about this accident. He was drowned. I think that that was one of the things that hastened the coming of a peer. But I knew George. He and my brother and I used to just stand, as I remember, and talk outside the inn. That's what I remember most about Craig Muir was the friendliness, the openness, and and the weather was so beautiful. And we were there for two weeks, and in that two weeks, I made friends I looked forward to seeing the following year. There was 
I was trying to remember Hugh Carmichael, Huey. Huey Carmichael lived up near the spa shop in a house called Loughlinny. I remember all these things. It was my idea of, remember, I was just a young girl. It was my idea of all the kind of adventurers that R.L. Stevenson had written about, the sort of Alan Breck Stewart kind of Highlander. Who else was there? Um, there are the people that looked on and the school it looked on. Now, by the time I was, I was there, the school had extended itself. In fact, when I was a lecturer, middle 60s, one of my students came from Oban and he wanted to teach. So he did a, de a degree and then he did a teaching uh, qualification and he was posted to Lochdon Head School. You know, he was called Alistair. Alistair Scott, no, re no relative to me, but he was, he was a, a nice student. But the fact that his initials AS and his second name were the same as mine, how I, he, was, he was in my classes, but I got to know him a little specially because on one occasion a letter was sent and it was sent to A. Scott at the college. And I was, at, I was working at Craigie College of Education at this time. It was just before I went to, to work at university. It was put in my locker, A. Scott. And I opened it and it was a personal thing. It was a bank thing and I felt awful. And I sought him out and explained about this. And he said, it's all right, it's all right. You could see perfectly. And it made a kind of little bond between us. And that, and that was how he particularly wanted to do this for me. Alistair Scott, I don't know what happened to him afterwards, but Don Head was a small school and I think he would probably have moved somewhere bigger. And he wrote to me and told me, because students did, you know, tell, tell me what happened to them. And um, I told him about my mother's name and her sister's. And he found them in the archive registers at Lovedon Head School. It was like being back, you know, at that time. But as I said, I think in one of the emails I sent you, the kind of education these boys and girls got at Lovedon Head was exceptional. And it reminded me a bit, and I went back to read. There's somebody, and I couldn't find the name of the person, but there was somebody who wrote um, some articles about the intellectual quality of the people at Craignure. And it was centred on that little church. And it was a minister, and there was a minister at Lochdon. 
there was a separation at Lordon because there was a free church group there. Now, they didn't have a church, but a man called Dougald McGregor gave them a lean-to. So there was a, there was a free church presence. But in Craig Newer, the intellectual discussion, that's not my phrase, that's from this, what I read. The intellectual discussion was of a very high quality and it was centered on that church. On the ministers, when they changed over, there was a considerable input from the Church of Scotland into this. And my grandfather was there. He was one of them. And there were teachers and there were doctors. And presumably these people had cars. And they came in from Salon and other places. And there were discussions. And they were not all based on faith or church matters. It became a kind of haven, a kind of place for people who wanted to talk about discussions and things, very much the kind of thing I would have liked myself. But I can't find that there were any women there at all. questions that comes up again and again in this project is about the nature of the folk that left from the island of Soy that were evacuated from the island of Soy and came to settle in Java. So I asked Anne, did she know any of the folk from Soy? Yes, I met them. They, they came in 1952 and we were on holiday there at that time. Time to remember, we were invited there and there were, I think, nine families, and they divided Java Lodge into, they put up room dividers and created what, I suppose, a series of apartments. I think it was nine small families. I, I, I can picture one of them because she walked in the gardens with us. But I remember them as being quite shy people. The lady that walked with us was was from the island, though. I remember my mother asking about what had happened to the sheep, because there was a particular kind of sheep. And I think, I think, I don't remember the answer, but I think I've read since then that they were they were separated out and sent to farms. I hope so. To give a flavour of the space of Java Lodge and the gardens around it, I asked Anne to describe for us her memories of the gardens. Well, my grandfather was a very great gardener and um, he, he, it was his profession. What I remember about the gardens was the house faced out onto the Sound of Mull and the front door was there 
and the windows, bay windows at the front, so that the gardens, and it was very near the shore, so the gardens were on the sides and round the back, and going, what would that be, northwards towards Scalastro. The gardens were like that, but they were not vast. You know the Torresay Gardens? There's an awful lot of stonework in the Torresay but not in the Java ones. The Java ones were beautifully landscaped with paths. I can't remember if there were statuary, but there were beautiful cut hedges and a lot of very beautiful trees. And if I had been more observant, I would have looked to see if some of those trees actually came from Java. They might just have done. The climate would be different, but I didn't ask the right questions. But I know that my father, my grandfather was the kind of gardener who would have advised Donald McLean. His advice would have been sought. So what I remember is tall hedges and paths. And it came out at the gates. There were gates into Java. And these, if you were on the road from Craigmuir Inn, when you walked southwards, you could see Java Lodge looking out onto the sea, but you had to go round the road a little to the gates. And between the gates and the back of Java were the gardens. It was a lovely place. When I went back on my own, I went back twice just for a, a break. I was going to Iona. I stayed in that hotel that was built on the ground of, of Java. So Java must have been removed and it demolished. In fact, it was demolished. Joe Curry says it was demolished and the hotel built. But the gardener's house was still there. So even when I went to the hotel, the gardener's house was still there. And I could go back. It was quite a sizable house. It's a nice place. I'd like to have lived in it myself. A big green door. I don't know when it was removed, but the, the Java houses, the seven Java houses, are built on that ground. And actually, if one were to go to those Java houses and walk northwards a little bit between the houses and the hotel, that's where the gardens were. Her grandfather comes up again and again in the conversation, so I thought it would be worthwhile to ask, what could Anne tell us about her grandfather? He was from Morven. And I can trace his line back to 1750. And, and, and I don't mean that I've just sort of picked up things here and there, because when I was researching my grandfather, 
I went to Lochgilphead, to the register house there, to get information. And a lady said to me, you're very lucky because the Lord Lieutenant has been researching Lawdale. And that's where your ancestors are from. And I was trying to remember his name. He sent me everything he had. And I've got them, including the certificates that two of the brothers got for being in the 45, 1745. They had certificates that said that they they did never turn King's evidence. Isn't that astonishing? A lot of the returning ones, and who could blame them, turned to King's evidence, but these McLaughlins asked for certificates to prove that they did not. They must have been an honourable lot. And there were two brothers who didn't marry, but who acted as scribes, riding round writing letters for people. And that grandmother who became a milliner was the daughter of the blacksmith at Furness. She had one or two sisters, I think. But she was his daughter. And I don't know a lot about him, but I went to Furness and the smithy was still there and the water behind it. And there was a very, very old man that somebody in the village took me to see. And he said that he couldn't remember my grandfather, but he knew that the blacksmith had always been at the centre of things in the village. So I think she was, she was his daughter. And I don't know how Alexander McLaughlin met, met her. But he travelled, he, ha he had a lot of cattle. His, fa his father had cattle. And I think they must have met at a market or somewhere like that. Her father was the blacksmith. Alexander's father was a farmer in Morvern. They don't ever seem to have been fishermen. And interestingly, they don't seem to have been cleared. I understand that the McLaughlins, the eldest son, was always Lachlan McLaughlin. Alexander was the second son. But the older son in Lawdale in Morvern, the oldest son of that family, was always, he always had some kind of employment. And it seems to have been some kind of writing employment with the Duke, Duke of Argyle. It's a very interesting lot of people. I would like to have known them. Anne had so much to say about so many things, so I thought I'd ask her if she had any other memories of Craig and Ewer itself. When we were there, we were welcomed largely because of my mother. You know, because somebody would open the door and my mother would recognise this person. 
because the, this would not because this would have been an adult, but a child at school with her. So once my mother had died, my mother died in 1970. My father was already dead that time. So my brother was ma married and I was married. And when I went back on my own, it was a different kind of village because I realized that the open doors were open for my mother. And uh, I would have had to prove myself to have had that kind of entry into these places. And I, I was invited into houses I would never, ever have been invited into because my mother would stand on a doorstep and say, I'm Mary McLaughlin. I think I mentioned to you that she and Isabella were pupil teachers at Lockdown School. And she had such a super education. And then later, afterwards, after she had left, and I believe, because I've been reading, there was another teacher at Lovedon School called Alan Lamont, enormously thought of. Another teacher who came with terrific qualifications. I don't know for personal choice or something, wanting to be on an island and in a small school and uh, make, a, make a life there. But I don't know any more about Alan Lamont. I just thought that was interesting that this had happened again. The teacher in my mother's time was called Mr. Darling. And he was from Edinburgh and as I told you, I'm, I lived in Edinburgh for 27 years and one of the big shops on Princess Street was Darling's. It was on, uh, a kind of John Lewis. Towards the West End, there was um, Romains and Patterson and there was, um, I can't remember, Forsyth, R&W Forsyth, where you got your good clothes if you were a man. And uh, there were darlings, very famous for curtains and, and, and all sorts of things. And he may well, I don't know for sure, but I think he was of that family. He didn't want to be in Edinburgh. He wanted to be in the islands, and that's where he went. And these boys and girls got the benefit of this. It, was, it wasn't... He went, he went to Edinburgh University and it wasn't my degree that he took. It was a classics, Latin, Greek, philosophy, the arts. And these children got the benefit of this. As a last thing, I asked Anne if there were any other further memories that she wished to share with us of her time on Mull. It was being at the inn and we had bedrooms to the front and I remember going down in the evening in the sunshine and the evening and the minister and his son would come down and my father put, had a pipe and he smoked 
but my brother and I used to stand. My mother, as I remembered, never came down, but my brother and I used to stand with other people or sit with chairs and things and just look out. And and I was, I was very, very happy to be there. It, it, it's almost trite, isn't it? But it was just, you know, that, the church was there. I never felt happy because, oh, this is where my mother came from. It, it, it wasn't that. It was, I was young. I had a boyfriend in Edinburgh and he wrote to me every day. And the postman brought these and my bro- one, one day there wasn't one and my brother said, my brother said he would go and hide <laughs> because there hadn't been a letter from my boyfriend, so <laughs> that was there was, there was I was a very happy girl on Mull, and it seemed to be a place that liked you to be happy. Not that my mother was ever a that kind of person, but she had a warmth to her that um, seemed to have sustained her. But I, I, I liked the inn immensely. And um, I liked being outside the inn. And there was just a short little bit of road across. And then you could go down to the water. I remember that very, very clearly. Thank you so much, Anne. That was just brilliant. Your clarity of recollections will mean so much to so many listeners. All of the names that you mentioned will be connected to lots of people and I know that hearing them again will bring a lot of joy to a lot of people. As I said earlier on, we've got another episode out today, episode 71, with Cameron Fletcher, formerly of Terloisk, who talks about his life there, schooling in Oban, and his career in Argyll and Perthshire. Another thing to say is that I also have another podcast on the go these days with my friend Ellen Mainwood of Campbellton Picture House. It's called Down the Back of the Seats and it's about public venues and cinemas and the culture of these organisations and what happens when the public comes into them. And it's kind of grown and morphing into other things as well. So uh, it's got a lot more of me in than, than what we do in the winter. I tend to peel back me uh, as much as possible so you can focus in on the speaker in it. but uh, yeah it's it's a lot of fun to record we're really enjoying it and we're speaking to a whole wealth of people that are fascinating as well so if you're interested in silly stories and grotty stories from cinemas and theatres um, yeah please give a listen to Down the Back of the Seats the podcast which you can find on all major podcast providers There's also a live event coming up with Seamus Carey of the brilliant Reasons Why podcast and Topper on October the 4th at 19.30. So Seamus and I are going to meet together and talk about the nature of our work, me with um, what we do in the winter and Seamus with the Reasons Why. Seamus' work looks at life and identities in Cornwall and is quite, quite brilliant. I can't recommend it strongly enough. We're both exploring similar topics in in quite different ways. Seamus' work is very much targeted and it's addressing specific questions in each episode of its podcast. Whereas what I do with what we do in the winter is a bit more long form in building its picture of the issues that matter. I love Seamus' work. So it's a total honour to be asked to do this together. Thank you very much Nina and Rona and Antoper who've pulled this all together. 
Seamus is also currently on tour with Help, I Think I'm a Nationalist, which is coming to Mull and Dunoon, amongst other places, in October. Thank you to our monthly subscribers. It means so much to me that you've kept going with us all this time. It really, it's brilliant. And, you know, I, I really, really do appreciate it. If you're a new listener and want to subscribe to the podcast, we'd love to have you along for the ride. Likewise, if you're inclined to leave a review on whichever platform you use, please do so. Even a star review, just a wee click, just gives a bit more traction to the project. And there's quite a few new episodes coming out soon as well with a wide range of people that I think you'll be very, very interested to hear their perspectives on life. If I can tempt you to make a donation to the podcast, that would also be greatly appreciated. It does cost a lot of time to, to, to run it. Um, yeah, it'd be very much appreciated if you if you could pop in the price of a cup of coffee or something somewhere. That would be amazing. But if you want to do that, um, you can go to the What We Do in the Winter tab, uh, website and go to the Donate tab and you can set up a donation there. And it can be a one-off or a repeated one, whichever you prefer. But if you don't want to donate at all, of course, I'm more than happy for you just to listen. It's just great having you along with us. Well, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you again soon. Take care, wherever you are, and if you've got a cold like me, may it swiftly leave your system. More in tang. Shenakadeh.